following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. What is it that stretches your patience? What is it that tests your patience? I asked that first hour and there was a couple up front and they just said, Sammy, they have one child that pushes their limits and pushes their buttons unbelievably. But I know for me, I was thinking about at this stage of my life, phone Gehenna. Do you know what phone Gehenna is? That's when they put you on hold for 10, 15, 20. Yesterday, no joke, 90 minutes of waiting on the phone. Then when they pick up the phone, they ask you for information that you've already told three other people, and then they put you back on hold. That's phone Gehenna. That does tend to test my patience a little bit. Another one is the FBC building approval through Wildemar. Yes, yes, friends, we joke about it, but though it is an internal spiritual test for me that somehow they can't seem to sign off on the dotted line. But soon, maybe soon, we'll see. Also, I don't know, the third one was, I thought, texting drivers. You know when you pull up behind them and the signal's green and nothing happens, right? And you're waiting and you can see them. So finally you go, a little tap on the horn and the phone goes flying and they take off. Or they're blocking the right turn. You know, those are the things that begin to test us. I'm sure that you've got a much more rich list than I do. But the reason I share that with you is this. God calls us to be patient. In fact, to be patient with his second coming. In fact, he tells us that we're not to become exasperated or angry because we need to remember how patient God has been with us. How patient God has been with you. In fact, he is so willing to hold back righteous anger from sinners like you and me, how much more should we be patient with those who cause us frustration? The Apostle Peter in 2 Peter, he tells us, that he wants to equip the churches to be patient. And what he's doing is that the false teachers are basically calling for impatience. They're saying, look, Christ isn't going to come. He's delaying intentionally. And they're calling for them to be impatient and to be frustrated when Peter actually says in 2 Peter chapter 3 to make sure that you understand that it only appears that he is delaying. So if you would, open your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3. Hopefully you have a Bible today. We are Faith Bible Church. And follow along in your outline. In chapter 3, Peter is focusing on the main event of eschatology. And that is the second coming of Christ where he punishes his enemies and he rewards his own children. And in verses 1 and 2, point number 1 in your outline, the return of Christ is certain. And it's certain based upon the Word of God. He tells you in no uncertain terms because of the hundreds of promises, hundreds of them in the Old Testament by the prophets, in the New Testament in Christ saying them himself in the Gospels, and the apostles telling you in the rest of the New Testament promising that Christ is going to return. Listen, your assurance of the return of Christ is as much as you trust your Bible, because the Bible declares that he is returning. He is returning. But in spite of the clear teaching of God's living word, 
Number two in your outline, the return of Christ is challenged. It's going to be fought against by false teachers. And what they were doing is they were trying to do three things, intimidate through mockery. They were flaunting their so-called freedoms by living immorally or lustfully. And they're trying to manipulate their thinking through arguments, none of which are going to stop Christ from judging or punishing those without Christ or rewarding those who are in Christ. Now, in response to those arguments, though, now Peter actually tells us and uh, that number three in your outline, the return of Christ is clear on verses 5 to 10. He takes six verses to expose the foolishness of these false teacher claims. And in verse 5 through 7, we looked at last week, verse by verse, word by word, and it was first in your outline, God's invasion of history destroys the uniformitarian argument. Now, what they were saying is this, Christ has done nothing in the past, so he's going to do nothing in the future. Meaning this, Christ has not invaded this planet or infected this planet or radically changed this past to alter the world, so he won't radically be changing the world in the future. And they state that in verse 4. But Peter proves they're all wrong. He says in verse 5, you forgot that God created this world. That's pretty radical, would you say, out of nothing? And then secondly, he flooded this world with a worldwide universal flood judgment that covered the entire planet in water and altered this world radically. In fact, those proofs were so strong, he says, because he has radically invaded the world in the past, he is going to radically invade the world in the future, and that's what verse 7 was all about. He's going to say, look, <laughs> he is going to come, he's going to punish his enemies, he's going to judge all of mankind, he's going to reward his own, and it's clearly going to happen. But guess what? The false teachers are not done yet. They're not done being critical. They sneer, well, why is he taking so long? Why is he taking so long to come back? And guess what? There's some Christians in those churches that are asking the same question. They're starting to get a little frustrated. It's, you know, 40 years since Christ has gone in their minds. And they're like, why is he taking four decades to return? What's happening? Well, he makes it very, very clear today that he is not delaying. But secondly, in your outline, the very character of God destroys the delay arguments. The very character of God destroys the delay arguments. I want you to read aloud with me these very exciting verses, verse 8, 9, and 10. And read it from your outline so we can all read it together. And read it from a good version, you know, instead of the one you brought. And so, let's read it out of the New American Standard, the one that Paul used. Here we go. And Peter, verse 8. Here we go. Together. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. You should be, and I should be patient with the return of Christ, because he has been patient with you. You might want to write that down. You should be patient for the Lord's return, because he has been so patient with you. He promised he would come, and he's going to deliver on that promise. 
And God calls each of you to be patient. Now, our patience shows itself with our excitement, with our expectation, with even our longing that he will return and call us home because the return of Christ is something that gives us all hope today. In fact, the second coming reminds us to fight sin in our lives and to live obedient with our lives because the homegoing of our relationship with Christ can happen at any moment. It's imminent. In fact, Christ's return actually does require a particular stage. And when you understand what will happen on this world stage, then you're more prone to understand really what's happening right now to set up that end-time world stage. In fact, the return of Christ is going to bring judgment. It really is. Those who live unrighteously, those who persecute the church, those who've turned away from Christ. I just read of a friend who's in Canada. He's a pastor. He's now arrested because their church refuses to not meet. They will meet. And and as a result, now he's in chains, literally. Uh, Those people are going to be punished at the return of Christ. They're going to be punished forever. So the second coming is something that intensifies your desire to share with others that they would know Christ before it's too late. And ultimately, it should fire up your desire to meet with Christ, not just by faith, but what? Face to face, right? So you should be patient for Christ's return because he's been so patient with you and me. And in these three verses today, Peter really has blown me away as he describes the vast and incredible character of God. In this three-verse description, he destroys the false teacher's accusations that Christ is delaying so long. They say it must mean that he's not coming at all, but nothing could be farther than the truth. Peter basically is saying to them, in these three verses, you don't understand God. That's what he's saying. You don't understand God. Now, A.W. Tozer has said something that I believe is true. He said this, what comes to our mind about God is the most important thing about us. So when you think about God, what comes to mind? Because many believers don't study the word enough to really understand the depths of who God is. Christians often remain shallow in their knowledge of God. And so as a result, they think that God is mostly loving. So when a worldwide crisis happens and 9-11 or COVID now infects the world, they don't understand that. They don't get it because they have a wrong perspective on God. Or God is mostly forgiving, so they they don't take their sins seriously. Or they think God is mostly inactive, so they live how they want because God's not going to do anything anyway. Or they think God is not in control, so they do what others say instead of what God says in his word. Or worst of all, they begin to believe what Psalm 50, 21 says there in your outline when God says to us, you thought that I was just like you. God is not like us. He is holy. And holy means not only is he pure, but he is also unique. He is not like us. And today I want you to be like my son Matthew. Now, every good dad in this room had all kinds of experimental things to do with their kids when they were one years old, right? Come on, you wanted to test. This is a whole new thing for you, so you put them through various hoops and tests. One of the tests that I gave my son Matthew when he was one years old is I offered him two graham crackers. One of them was like a little piece of graham cracker, and the other one was the full-size cracker. You know what I'm talking about? The big one. And I held them back up, and both equal distant from it, said, which one will you take, Matthew? And of course, which one did he take? The huge one, right? 
He grabs it. He can't even get it to his mouth, so he sticks it in his eye and starts crying. Good experiment. Good fathering. Okay. I actually, this morning, want you to do something very similar. I want you to grab onto an understanding of God that you can't handle, that's bigger than you can understand and comprehend. Because you are finite and He is infinite, He is greater than you can comprehend. Amen? And I want you to let Him be that way as He exposes Himself in this particular text. So grab onto that view. Letter A in your outline, the three reasons that Peter gives saying he isn't delayed, he isn't late, is the profoundness of eternity proves that Christ is not delaying His return. The profoundness of eternity. Now that's found in verse 8. So take a look at verse 8 closely and we'll walk it through. But do you, do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like one day. Peter's answering that criticism that Christ is somehow delayed so long that you can't really believe he's coming, but you would not waver on your doubt of uh, his return. You would actually be certain of his returning if you saw eternity the way God sees eternity. From God's experience of time, it hasn't been long at all. God understands time differently than you do. In fact, from people's point of view, Christ's coming seems like a long time away, but from God's point of view, it seems like yesterday. It won't be long at all. Look at verse 8. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved. He says, don't fail to recognize this. Do not fail and make certain you understand this. And Peter calls them beloved. Beloved. Now, that tells us that he's talking to who? Christians. He's talking to Christians here in this context. But it's also telling us something that we skip over when we read the Bible. And that is that you are beloved. You're God's children, And, you know, we often forget of the incredible, intense love of Christ for his children. Many of you in this room have children, and I know without a single doubt that many of you would actually die for your children if called upon. Now, intensify that a hundredfold with absolute perfection, and now you understand the intense love that God has for you. You are his beloved, and he wants them to know you are beloved, children, even when you doubt the Lord, you're beloved, And you want to understand and not miss that what it means to be an eternal God. He's going to explain to them what it means to be an eternal God. Psalm 90 verse 4 is what Peter is kind of quoting here. For a thousand years, Moses declares this in Psalm 90, in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by or in the watch of the night. It's like nothing, a thousand years. Peter paraphrases this in verse 8 encouraged his readers to not fail to recognize this. Don't, re- don't fail this. God's perspective on time is different than ours. God's perspective of time is different than yours. An actual theological definition of the word eternal is that God is not limited by time. God is not limited by time. Make certain you understand that the second person of the Trinity, all three persons, but the second person is called eternal. Jesus is eternal. Isaiah 9, 6, you know this verse, speaking of Christ. 
For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be resting on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, what? Eternal Father. That is the Father, literally, of eternity. In other words, the one who oversees eternity is Jesus Christ. It actually says, and he says of himself in Revelation twenty-two thirteen, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He's the eternal one. No amount of time that passes, that's of no consequence from God's timeless perspective. A moment is no different than a century, and an eon is no different than a moment to the eternal God. What seems like a long time to believers, which would be like a thousand years, that seems long to me, is actually short like one day in God's sight. That's what he's saying in verse 9. A thousand years is like one day to God. And Peter's contending that while Christ's return may seem far off to human beings, it is imminent from God's perspective. Listen, you might want to write this down. Finite people must not confine an infinite God to their time schedule. Finite people, that's you and me, must not confine an infinite God to their time schedule. I know you've gone through things, you're going, Lord, I'm done, okay, it's, okay you can finish now, it's okay, I'm ready, okay, I'm over now, come on. And it's like, no, we're finite and we cannot confine an infinite God to our timetable. The Lord Jesus Christ will return in the exact moment that he has determined by his will in eternity past. It's going to happen. Those who foolishly demand that God operate according to their time frame ignore that he is, Micah 5, 2, look at it, his goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Psalm 90 goes on to say, from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Listen, kids, I'm sorry, but nobody made God. Nobody made him. He always was and is. I am who I am, Jesus says, and he knows all of your tomorrows, that's good news, right? No surprises, no oops, no oh, should have done that, no do-overs. God knows exactly what's going to happen, and therefore he is not surprised. And just like those who press God's timing are those who argue that Christ is not going to return since he's taken so long, but their argument is foolish when you recall that God's eternal. He's eternal. He always was, and he always will be. He's eternal everlasting to everlasting. Go as far back as your mind allows you to go, and that was Christ and the Father and the Son. And go as far as you can into the future, as far as your mind can extend, and it'll still be Christ and the Father and the Spirit. Forever. Forever. Eternal. One God. John Piper writes this, Since our God is immortal, and does not age, and does not forget, and sees all of history at a glance, and is never bored, he clearly does not experience time like we do. Since you were made in God's image, there is in you something like God's experience of time. Now we know this because the older that you get, it seems like time gets shorter. Can I hear an amen from older saints? That's right. It, yeah, we say stuff like, it seems like yesterday we were having kids. It seems like yesterday we just met. It seems like yesterday we got married. It's not only age that rapidly speeds up time, and we get a little bit, because we're in his image, we get a little flavor of this, but it's also joy. Joy changes your perspective and gives you a little flavor of the eternal God. When you're bored in a meeting, and you feel like, I would just rather just, you know, basically uh, die than rather go through this meeting, 
you go, it, it lasts, you know, it's only an hour meeting, but it seemed like you lived a week, you know, and that you, you, you want to just give up and throw up and that kind of thing. You go on a vacation, though, for two weeks, and it's so filled with fun and so filled with joy, it's almost as if you're going to say, you know what, it's, it seems like after it's all done, we just got here yesterday. It went that fast. That's God because he is timeless, and that's God because he is the God of joy. He understands that. So when he returns and actually to take over this planet, to claim it as his own, which it is his, he's going to say, it's, it's like I was just here yesterday because he's the eternal God. So we need to understand, you should be patient for Christ's return because he has been patient with you. So letter A, the profoundness of eternity proves that he's not delaying, but also letter B, the depth of God's mercy proves that he is not delaying his return. The depth of his mercy. Not only do you need to embrace the eternal nature of God, but his magnificent mercy. You know, when you think about mercy, understand mercy is God's tender compassion towards us in our distress, when we're distressed, causing him to act on our behalf to relieve our suffering when he knows it is best. Now, it's always conditioned by his timing, but when he knows it's best. But mercy, he relieves our distress. If you're a, a Christian, you were at some point in distress over your sin, and he relieved you of that distress. Did he not? He did. Well, understand, you can only be tempted to believe Christ is not returning if you have a very low view of God. Peter's response to the attack on Christ's return as a delay he does so in a very powerful way in verse 9. Take a look at verse 9. The Lord is not, what? Slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Now this verse is misused in many different contexts. Peter says, Jesus will keep his promise to return. Now the writer of Hebrews said the same promise. What did he write? Well, take a look at your outline, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 37. Yet in a very little while, he who is coming will what? He'll come and will not delay. So verse 9, the Lord is not slow about his promise. Verse 9, he's patiently waiting and he's driven by a heart of abundant mercy. Abundant mercy. Despite the ridicule of scoffers, the Lord is not slow about his promise. Now that word slow means delayed. It means late or idle or it really does have the idea of loitering. Like they're insulting God by saying he's loitering, being slow. None of that applies to him. His seeming slowness is not due to lack of ability, lack of willingness, lack of forgetfulness or some forgetfulness or apathy on his part. In fulfilling his promise, God is working everything precisely to his perfect will and his perfect schedule. Now look at that quote from John MacArthur there. He says this, This reason Christ's return is not immediate is because God is patient with sinners. Any waiting is attributable only to God's gracious long-suffering. It is not that he is indifferent, powerless, or distracted. Instead, it is just the opposite. Because he is merciful, because he is forbearing, he delays so that elect sinners might come to repentance. The cause of a so-called delay is not from disinterest. 
or that he doesn't care. The cause of a seeming delay lies in God's mercy towards sinners like you and me. Now, you know what the false teachers were doing? Remember that the, the first Peter, uh, just, they just came out of a season of intense persecution. And they're wondering, Lord, this, this would be a good time for you to return, right? Good time. And so then the false teachers are saying, see, he doesn't care for you. He doesn't want to protect you. He doesn't want to keep this from you when God has other and bigger and deeper purposes. Listen, the cause of his delay lies in his mercy. His mercy toward sinners like you and me. God is giving more time for his chosen children to repent of their sins. And Jesus will return when God's patience is ended. And when that time allotted has expired, catch this now, he will turn when the last believer has turned to Christ as Savior for salvation. He will return when the last believer has turned to Christ. It is the sovereign God who graciously, right now, grants a time interval for repentance. God works out his plan, and even though you and I might express doubts, God knows what he's doing. What's he doing? Well, let's pick this verse apart and see what he's doing. He adds, verse 9, as some count slowness. Now, the some here are not the false teachers. They are the Christians who have been influenced by these scoffers and are doubting his return. Some of these Christians are unable to explain the delay of Christ's return. They begin to doubt as they listen to the scoffers kind of make fun and say, well, he doesn't care about you. And Peter says, God has purposed this time. He has purposed this time. And he continues, but verse 9, he is patient towards you. He is patient. He's addressing the readers here, not the scoffers, when he writes the pronoun you. Is patient toward you, Christian. Is patient toward you, beloved. So patient toward you refers to both Peter's immediate readers and anyone who will come to faith in Jesus Christ. Like who? Well, like those in John chapter 10, verse 16, when Jesus talks about you all here. He actually mentions you. He says this, I have, Jesus says, other sheep which are not of this fold, and I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. That is, Gentile sheepies are going to come, and then also each century more sheep are going to come. And some have argued, as they look at this text, well, the you here implies that everybody gets to be saved. God's going to give everybody salvation to all people. But understand, let's not take the Bible out of context. The context, verse 7, remember verse 7? It said the destruction of ungodly men. There's a destruction coming, so not to everybody. It clearly limits the you to believers. So consider also the term beloved, which is four times in this particular chapter. Consider that, and that also restricts the pronoun you, you here, to born-again Christians. So Peter indicates God is not going to judge his people hastily, but he's going to grant them time sufficient enough to come to repentance and to be born again. God is patient. God shows his patience now, and he has showed his patience all throughout time. Has he not? Way, even way back at the flood, Peter used this in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20, for who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. 120 years, the construction of the ark, and only eight people were brought to salvation. Patience now, in verse 9, this word patience, is a compound word combining two words, large and great anger. You say, how does that 
refer to patience. Large and great anger. Well, what Peter is saying here with this word patience is to show that God has a large capacity to store up anger and wrath before it spills out in judgment. So he holds it back. Now, all of us know what it means to hold back anger, right? We hold it back. Well, God is doing that on an intense scale. And while that judgment is coming and is inescapable and is deadly, right now, God's merciful patience has given his chosen the opportunity for reconciliation and salvation. You can be right with God. So God's wrath toward the individual sinner is immediately appeased when any person repents and believes in the gospel. So get this. God has been patiently waiting for 2,000 years for his children here this morning to believe. Aren't you glad that he waited for you? He has been waiting for you. I am glad he is waiting for me. I'm glad his patience has waited till 2021. I'm glad. Because that means I get to be his child. Understand, you should be patient with Christ's return because he has been patient with you. So much so, verse 9 adds this, not wishing for any to perish. Again, he's not speaking about universalism, that everybody gets saved. In this letter, Peter claims that the false teachers, the scoffers are condemned. They will face destruction since the whole passion and the whole passage is about God destroying the wicked here. His patience is not so that he can save all of them, but so that he can receive all his own, all his own. He can't be waiting for everybody to be saved since that basically, that emphasis in the passage here is he will destroy the world and the ungodly and those who do perish go to hell because they are depraved and worthy of only hell and have rejected the only remedy which is Jesus Christ not because they were created for hell not because they're predetermined to go to hell but because of their sin they deserve hell and their rejection of Christ that's what he says not wishing verse 9 for any to perish and perish means to be destroyed in eternal hell suffering forever damnation because they are dead in their sins and they refuse God's offer of salvation that he made so generously in his, in his son Jesus Christ. He did not have to send his son. He did not have to have his own son die on our behalf. He did not have to pour out his wrath on his son for you so you could be right with him, but he did so. But he did so out of his mercy and out of his grace. And as a result, understand God is going to be glorified at the very same time, it is very clear from Scripture that the Father takes no delight in the death of the lost and the death of the wicked. Ezekiel 18, for I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. And he even wants the false teachers to turn to Christ, but they refuse to do so. They actually take his mercy and they use it as, oh, he's delaying. And they take every aspect of his character and begin to use it as an insult against him. And basically the response is that they're going to bear the full responsibility for their own condemnation. But verse 9 ends with this. But God wanting for how many to come to repentance? All. Now God provides a time for people to repent. And even though it's a gift, God also expects repentance is an act that people must perform. Let me say that again. 
God provides a time for people to repent, but repentance is an act that people must perform. And the mockers in people's day refused to come to repentance. They refused to turn from their lustful lifestyle that he just talked about in the previous verses. Even though God is granting them a period of mercy, they refuse to repent. Now, you all know what repentance is. You all know that. Repentance is changing your mind, which always leads to a change of behavior, a change of direction. You're headed one way, repentance means you begin to head the other direction. You change your mind, but it changes your direction. You say, where do you get that, Chris? From the Bible, Acts 26, verse 20. They should repent and turn to God from their sin, performing the what? The deeds appropriate with repentance. God wants to save his chosen children. And the context here when it says any, any to perish, he doesn't want any to perish, and all, for all to come to repentance, that's limited to the elect, his chosen, namely all those whom the Lord has chosen and will call to himself in time. Another way to put it, Christ will not come back until every person whom God has chosen is saved. You might want to write that down. Christ will not come back until every person whom God has chosen is saved. Because you are dead in your sins. Now, last time you checked, right? If someone's dead, do they respond yes or no? No, wait, wait, wait. Will they, will they move? Will they, will they kind of launch up zombie-wise? Will they do that, yes or no? No, that's TV. We're talking about reality here. Right? When you're dead, you don't respond. Because the Bible says, Ephesians 2, 1, you are dead in your sins. You cannot respond to him. And therefore, you're unable. God must choose you. God must call you to himself. God must awaken your heart so you can respond in repentance and faith. Look at Ephesians 1.4. You know this. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. John 15.16. You did not choose me, but I what? You didn't choose me. He says it very plainly. Romans 9.16. So then it doesn't depend on the man who wills or chooses or decides. Or the man who runs, meaning puts forth effort and goes for it. But it all depends on God on whom has what? Mercy. The reason for the so-called delay in Christ's coming is not because he's slow to keep his promise or because he wants to judge more of the wicked or because it's more, he's impotent in the face of wickedness. No, Christ only seems slow at his coming because he is patient and in his mercy he desires time for his chosen to respond and repent. Let me ask you right now, how many of you in this room are saved? Would you raise your hand, please? Okay, put them down. He waited 2,000 years for you. 2,000 years. There are days I can't wait 20 seconds for my wife to get in the car. <laughs> 2,000 years he waited for you. Those of you who are not saved who are here today, he's still waiting for you. It is the time and the season of mercy. And you know what? Not only is God waiting, we're waiting. Would you please hurry up? We would like to get out of here, all right? Can I hear an amen? amen? 
we want out of here. So, of course, once all the elect are accounted for, God's patience is going to have to run out here. And having given the world as much time as he sovereignly determined, God will pour out his wrath on the earth, which leads us to verse 10, letter C in your outline. We see letter A, the profoundness of eternity. Letter B, the depth of his mercy. Now letter C, the certainty of Christ's return and the power of his judgment undoes any deception over his delay. He is powerful enough. Listen, he says, while there's mercy, he's currently holding back judgment. This season of mercy, though, you all now enjoy is not going to last forever. I don't care what your age is. You say, well, I'm not called. Listen, don't play with sovereignty. You are called upon to repent. You are called upon to repent right now. God says he is going to come, and when he comes, it's over. And your opportunity for repentance will be over at that moment. You are playing with your soul by not turning to Christ. Do not do it. Look at verse 10. It says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with an intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Based on his preceding arguments, Peter confidently asserts the day of the Lord is going to come. No matter what the false teachers claim, their evidence against them is overwhelming. He has destroyed their arguments. The day of the Lord is a future time of judgment. It is all those eschatological events. It's when God judges the wicked on the earth and ends this world system in its present form. The world that you know will no longer exist when Christ returns. When he returns, when history then is done to the new heaven and new earth, it will not be the same place. It will not the Old Testament prophets tell you very clearly that the day of the Lord is a time of unequal darkness and damnation, a period when God will act in a climactic way to vindicate his name. He's going to destroy his enemies. He's going to reveal his glory, and he's going to establish his kingdom. Do you realize in the New Testament, you say, oh, that's all Old Testament, that's all a bunch of wrath of God. Listen, in the New Testament... Are you ready for this? This prophetic season, this day of the Lord is awesome and fearful. Six times in the New Testament, it's called the day of doom. Sounds inviting, doesn't it? it? Four times in the New Testament, this day is called the day of vengeance, God's vengeance for defying him. This day includes horrifying judgments from God because the world is overwhelmingly sinful. And it occurs at the time of the tribulation and also at the end of the millennial uh, reign and before the creation of the new heaven and new earth. God's going to burn it all and it's going to be a whole new heaven, a whole new universe, and a whole new earth. And it's going to come, verse 10, like a thief. It's going to be unexpected without warning and it will be disastrous for anybody who is not prepared. And it's going to be so powerful. Look at how powerful it's going to be in verse 10. Look at it. In which the heavens will pass away with a roar. Now, the heavens talk about the physical universe. It talks about the intergalactic space, the interstellar space. And that word roar is, uh, in the Greek language, it's called an onomapoetic word. What that means is it means what it sounds. And you know what it sounds like? It sounds like crackling. It sounds like a fire. When you're watching a fire and it's popping and crackling and burning and you're hearing the hissing, that's what this word is. It's going to disappear with that kind of roar and it's going to be so loud that it's going to be deafening. And the final phase of this day of the Lord in Matthew 24, it says the heaven and earth will pass away. It'll pass away. God is so powerful, he's going to incinerate the universe. Now, you didn't get that. 
Because the last time you walked outside and you looked at the stars in the sky, you went out to the desert, you went out to the mountains, and you went, wow, all of that is going to be burned. The entire universe. When he says the heavens, that's what he's talking about here. And when he says the elements, verse 10, will be destroyed with an intense heat, the elements there are talking about the atomic makeup, the neutrons, the protons, the the, the electrons are all going to burn everything to disintegration. Listen, I know some of you have got some stuff stored in your house. Some of you may have some extra storage. It's going to burn, okay? All of it's going to go. All of it. The entire physical earth in its present form and the entire universe will be consumed. Now, you've got to try this at home, dads, if you have young kids. You get a ping pong ball, you set it on top of a can, and you put a match next to it until it lights on fire. It is the coolest thing ever. It just goes, and then it's gone. I worked hard at that impersonation. There's just a little tiny drop of ash, and there's nothing. And that's the universe. When God takes it down, it's going to be done. It's going to be consumed. In fact, he says, verse 10, the earth and its works will be burned up. Everything that you have, everything that you own. That's why when we start treasuring things, it, it seems so, so dumb uh, it's, it's so useless because everything in the material world and the surrounding celestial universe, all your stuff, everything is going to go. And that's the promise of Jeremiah thirty-two seventeen. God is powerful enough to pull this off. It says, O Lord God, behold, you made the heavens and the earth with your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. He made the universe with his great power. He'll destroy the universe with his great power. And nothing is too difficult for you. God. Amen? At the moment, false teachers may be mocking their disparaging insults, really causing Christians to doubt. And Peter's going, don't doubt God's character. Don't doubt his eternity. Don't doubt his power. Don't doubt his mercy. He has guaranteed this with promise after promise over almost 300 promises, both Old and New Testament. And it'll all be fulfilled by his power. Omnipotent. All power. And after he returns, the entire present universe will cease to exist, be replaced with an entirely new heaven and a new earth where God will live with us forever. Revelation 22, they, that's us, will see his face, and they, that's us, will reign forever and ever with them. You should be patient about Christ's return because he's been so patient with you. Amen? Take this home. Make Make this a life passion. Make it your passion that you pursue the knowledge of God. Some of you right now are in community groups. I don't understand why all of you are not in community groups because they are studying right now knowing God. And there is nothing more important than our knowledge of God, our understanding. You've seen his patience, his eternality, his mercy, his power in this passage. You even meditate on this passage. You're going to grow more intimate with Christ. And I want to, if I can, if it's possible, to light a fire underneath you that will never go out, that you will have a passion to know God, to learn about him. Uh, the, The same fire that motivated Moses to say, show me your glory. The same motivation that that motivated David to say, as the deer panteth for the watery brook, so my soul pants for thee, O God. The same motivation and commitment and passion and fire that Paul said, I count all things to be lost and the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Know God. The greatest Christians 
are those who not just want to know about God, but they take steps to know him. They read books. They celebrate his attributes. They come to worship. They study his word. They're fellowshipping. They're discipling. They're having an intentional study of his character and his attributes. Listen, make certain that knowing God is a top priority in your life. You say, why are you making a big deal of this? I guarantee you. When you have a trial that you think you can't stand, when you have a crisis that is so deep it's hard to even describe, it will be your knowledge of God, your understanding of who He is that will carry you through. Please believe me when I say, when God strips everything away from you at some point in your life to teach you, to grow you, it will be your knowledge of Him that carries the day. It truly is. It is so important. It is so vital. Letter B, allow God's patience and His mercy to move you to gratitude. Allow His patience. Don't, don't walk away. Do not leave this room without deeply pondering God's immense patience in waiting for you to come to Christ. Our Lord has been patiently waiting to save you for 2,000 years. I mean, the Lord had to work extra hard on some of you, and I know He had to work extra hard on me. I mean, I, I, He had to move, save my entire family before they'd save me. And, and then He had to get them all to pray, and then they had to all get involved, and they had to get the whole church involved. The whole church was praying for me to become a Christian. And of course, it took all of God's power to make that happen, but He waited for me. He waited for me. And his mercy was extended to me. And I hope and pray that when you leave here today that you would say, thank you, Lord, for waiting for me. For not coming, but waiting to create me and then to save me and to make me your own. And let her see, understand the necessity to repent in order to be genuinely saved. Listen, yes, Christ must choose you. Yes, the Spirit must call you. But you are responsible to repent and turn to Christ. And both truths are biblical. God has to do it, yet you've got to respond. And the path to eternal damnation in hell is the path of the non-repentant heart. It's the path of one who rejects the person and the provision of Jesus Christ. It's the one who holds on to their sin. It's the path of those who... to turn from their sin to follow Christ as Lord. It's the path of the one who remains in church but only lives for themselves. It's the path of the one who hears the truth about who Christ is and what Christ did on the cross but remains indifferent or remains externally religious or remains Christian in name only. Listen, friends, the Bible says all must come to repentance. You must repent. Look at these verses, Matthew 4. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Luke 15, 10, in the same way I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who what? Repents. Romans 2, 4, the kindness of God, the mercy of God, the graciousness of God leads you to what? Repentance. And Acts 20, 21, solemnly testifying both Jews and Greeks, that's everybody, of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. God's mercy awaits for you. His mercy is waiting for you, but not forever. Turn from your sin and follow Christ. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast 
and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.